0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Remember, hyperdimensional physics, rotation, rotation, rotation. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, the program, the three hours at this time of night, in something like 193 countries where almost anything can happen, And it did, both this afternoon and then as a result, this evening. Uh, We had planned another kind of show, kind of a hybrid, and because of the late scrub of the second attempt to launch Artemis One this afternoon at about 11.17, actually it was morning back east and earlier morning here, 11.17 this morning because of uh, interesting problems that we'll go into momentarily. They called a second scrub, meaning they are now recycling the count. They are all exhausted. They're not going to try to launch tomorrow. They're not going to try to launch Monday, uh, which was their next opportunity uh, after uh, t- today. And they're going try to launch Tuesday. In fact, it looks now like uh, they're going to have to roll the uh, entire Adam, Artemis One stack, the rocket and the spacecraft back to the VAB, the Vehicle Assembly Building, which is a very complicated procedure involving, you know, risk. Everything you do with these major engineering projects involves risk. And they're going to probably have to stay there at least a month because of the way the geometry of launching between Earth and Moon uh, takes place, as well as um, there's another launch coming up, the replacement of crew 4 in the space station on the uh, SpaceX Dragon spacecraft with crew number 5 which is going up to the station I think the first week in October and there are no real windows for launching Artemis to the moon at the end of uh, September so we've got about a month now give or take before things develop again. So what we're going to do tonight, and uh, uh, what we've done is we've recycled our own folks. I was going to be joined by some members of the uh, Enterprise Mission Imaging Team. Well, it's just me, folks. It's just uh, You got me for the next three hours, because what I'm going to do is continue to show why this mission, this test mission, and the program that it is going to initiate, as well as the two unmanned missions currently en route are literally the missions after half a century which can blow the doors off the cover-up of what's really waiting on the moon so without further ado let us begin uh if you are new to the show we have something called radio with pictures which means you follow along your smartphone and you look at the images as I call out their numbers and to find the images for tonight's show, you go to the uh, other side of midnight That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says under that very interesting female astronaut who represents the first women who are going to be going to the moon in the um, follow on to the Apollo program named Artemis, who was the twin sister of the ancient Greek god Apollo. Um, Look for that banner, it says make no wine before it's time. Click on the banner that will take you to the guest page. And then right under the guest page, it says uh, fast links to items. Click on my name and that takes you to my items further down the page. And each has a nice big green number. Thank you, Keith. And so when I call out the numbers, you simply go to that link in your phone or on your computer and you can follow along with the imagery. And of course, imagery is the core of our conversation tonight. So beginning, Uh, number one, first link, of course, is the direct link to the Artemis blog over on uh, the NASA website. There is a running engineering commentary on that blog. So if you want to know what happened in NASA EASE, you go to that link, and that uh, will take you right up to the present where they talk about uh, management, uh, mission management team meetings, where they're going to assess where they are in terms of the engineering. They're giving everybody, obviously, the uh, Labor Day weekend off because they really have earned it. And they'll all reconvene probably Monday afternoon because, like me, these folks are workaholics and they need to get this mission off to the moon. So they'll probably come in. Monday afternoon and start the analysis of the copious data that was acquired for the second time during the second launch attempt. And then they will probably huddle for 24 hours and talk about options. And then by Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, they will present a full up press conference and they will uh, demonstrate and show us what they plan to do as they say going forward. But we can make certain assumptions, uh, given the bizarre engineering problem, which is really kind of weird. And it almost reminds me of that scene in Jurassic Park. Uh, You know the one where, you know, this incredibly complicated park uh, to let dinosaurs reconstructed from their DNA roam free on an island somewhere off the coast of South America, funded by this eccentric billionaire and everything is going fine, except for the mad computer programmer in the corner of the control room. And unbeknownst to the rest of the team in Jurassic Park, the mad programmer has been bribed, um, and between stuffing his face, which is kind of funny in the film, he inputs certain commands which sabotage all the multi-layered defense mechanisms including things like electrified fences and electric locks and triple gates and all that, allowing the dinosaurs, including the venomous and voracious velociraptors, to break free. And that, of course, is the backbone of the entire plot. It's been out there many, many years. I'm not giving anything away, but it's a fun film and you might want to go see it. Point is, I'm beginning to wonder and I know this is probably out of bounds, but that's what we do on the show. I'm beginning to wonder, given the stakes, what's at stake for Artemis I to begin returning humans to the moon? I'm beginning to wonder if amongst their team, NASA may not have a mad programmer. The reason I say this is because they had a press conference late this evening, East Coast time, which, of course, I'm taping 24-7, so even though I was taking a very needed nap, uh, I was able to get up and do various things I need to do before the show, and I was able to actually watch the briefing, so I'm kind of up on the NASA thinking. It turns out that the reason they had to scrub this morning is because during one part of the count, instead of the computer managing the sequence of valves and flow of hydrogen and chill down and all those things that have to be done to load the extraordinary, you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons of super, super cold liquid hydrogen and not quite so cold liquid oxygen. There's a part of the count and they call the pre-chill down where they basically flow a little liquid hydrogen through the pipes and through the systems in the rocket to kind of cool them down so when they open the valves totally they don't shock things cuz when you take things from ambient like 80 degrees Fahrenheit uh on a sunny morning in Florida down to 420 below 0 and if you do it too fast and too soon you can break things you know you remember you all seen the demonstration where the guy is a magician on stage and he's got this you know, vial or or vat or um, uh, you know container of liquid nitrogen, and he has a chrysanthemum and he taps it on the table and of course it's it's live it's organic it's bendable it's flexible. Then he dips it in the liquid nitrogen and he taps it on the table and it smashes into a million pieces. Well, that can happen to steel and tungsten and titanium and metals. So they Gently cool the hardware, particularly the engines, the base of this 122 foot tall Artemis um, Saturn V clone uh, before they open the valves fully and dump the uh, liquid propellants into the tanks prior to the launch. And it was during that chill down phase, which precedes what they call tanking, that something weird happened. As I said, in this part of the count, for a variety of reasons, they take manual control and there's an operator sitting there basically tapping on keys or moving a mouse to make sure that things are going smoothly and they're not under control of the master computer. And it was during that critical phase where somehow a command was issued to open the wrong valve at the wrong time, which resulted in the hydrogen fill line, which has to go through the seals to get from the ground side into the rocket. There's what they call quick disconnects. They literally are eight-inch pipes with hardware on the end, and when the rocket launches, they literally disconnect. You can see them back during the Apollo days, disconnecting from the Saturn V as the engines are lit just before it lifts off and you begin to see what they call first motion. They're called quick disconnects, and they do exactly what the name implies. Anyway, so this part of the pre-chill, they were under manual computer control. A guy, a gal sitting there typing commands into the computer to do this, do that, open this, close that, You know, and somehow a wrong command manually got sent to the rocket and it opened the wrong valve wide open at the wrong time. And instead of the hydrogen fill line having a nominal pressure of something like 20 pounds per square inch, the pressure shot up to 60 pounds per square inch three times. The specifications, and it was several seconds before, again, the manual operators looking at their screens caught it. The computer, of course, would have been much faster. And I'm still not certain. The press is still not certain. The guys doing the briefing were not certain why it had to be a manual part of the count and it was not all under computer control. And presumably, we'll find out next Tuesday when they do the follow-up briefing. Anyway, that line and that seal at the base of the stack, the Saturn, the space launch system, Artemis One stack, which is what a rocket with its payload is called, a stack, it experienced three times the internal pressure it was designed for. And you know, those of us outside, I mean, they're being very, very, very conservative. Some reporters said, "Well, could that have caused the damage to the seal?" And Mike Taraschino, who was the uh, mission manager, said, well, we don't know that yet, but come on. That's obviously what happened. Now, was it just a dumb accident? Was it just because someone, you know, we've all been working on computers and you hit the wrong key. Was this just a horrible error or was there a Jurassic Park mad programmer who sent deliberately the wrong command, knowing it would destroy the seal knowing they could not pressurize that line, knowing that exceeded the safety limits. Cause you don't want a lot of gaseous hydrogen mixed in the atmosphere around the base of the rocket with oxygen, bad things happen. Think Hindenburg. So they had to call up the count. They had to scrub the uh, launch attempt. That one little thing, which I was waiting to hear, Something under manual control. So, was this merely bad luck, bad timing, an error, something dumb and stupid? I mean, we all do those things. Or does NASA have in its midst a saboteur? And if they do, has anybody even thought about this? See, this goes back to the idea that it's not a military program. It's a civilian program. It's designed to look at rocks and craters and radiation. What is possibly encumbering national security having to do with rocks, craters, and radiation on the moon? I mean, it's not like a box of uh, uh, you know thousands, 11,000 pages of top secret files at Mar-a-Lago. This, by every standard, has no national security importance. Therefore, who is even looking? for a potential saboteur deep in the ranks. And I'm hoping someone's listening because, guys, I think it's about time you kind of looked around and, you know, this is the second time that something weird has happened in trying to get this sucker off the ground. Uh, What is it they say? One is an event, two is a coincidence, and three is a trend. Well, um, they're going to try again in a month, after they roll back, and they're really going to have to roll back because for a variety of reasons, they can't fix the hardware. They can't even get in there because this stuff is still super cold. It takes a long time, even in Florida weather, to warm things up to 80 degrees, what they call the ambient, meaning the average outside air temperature, uh, when you've cooled it down with hundreds of thousands of gallons of super cold liquid hydrogen. Remember, one of my friends many, many years ago was the guy who literally tamed liquid hydrogen for the American space program. And by metonymy for the Soviets and the Japanese and the Chinese, in other words, everybody kind of shares this engineering eventually, becomes public domain. Um, his name was Kraft Erici, and he was the guy who designed, when he was at General Dynamics, the hydrogen fueling and rocket system for the Centaur upper stage rocket back in the 1960s. So NASA has been working with incredibly difficult engineering surrounding any fluid at close to absolute zero. I mean, really, uh, somebody wrote a book or maybe they talked about writing a book and they were gonna call it, The Bugs That Live at Minus 420 Fahrenheit, because there are all kinds of engineering gremlins that can happen when you're dealing with super, super, super cold fluids just degrees above absolute zero, the coldest thermodynamic temperature in the universe under the laws of physics. So uh, for all these reasons, they had to stop the count, drain the rocket so it's safe, let it warm up. It's going to take probably 24 to 36 hours to warm back up to you know Florida temperatures. And then they will have access to the panels of where the quick disconnect pipes and engineering uh, mechanisms are that connect the ground side, the launch uh, uh, support system with the fuel loading um, pipes in the rocket itself. And that's where they will look and try to see if there is some kind of mechanical problem. If that overpressure basically bent or warp the seal. These are, you know, they're supposed to be friable. They're supposed to be, you know, pliable, not friable, pliable, meaning they bend, they're flexible. But when you cool these things down, no matter what kind of rubber you're using, um, it becomes as rigid as steel. So it doesn't take much. uh, I mean, 60 pounds of overpressure when it's rated for 20. Um, They probably cause cracks. And there was a very large leak every time, they tried three or four times to seed it, meaning do funny things with pressures that would make it kind of mate in its little receptacle recess. Nothing worked, so they have to go in mechanically and that requires days of bringing it back up to normal temps, engineers going out to the pad, you know, wrenches, removing covers, putting up some kind of a, a little containment box around it because you don't want ambient air with 20% oxygen uh, mixing with hydrogen fumes that could still be, you know, in in the tank, which has been sealed for several days when they're going to do all this. Anyway, a lot of detail. um, But it's necessary to kind of have the proper background. Now, there are some folks, it's amazing how people on the internet when they're anonymous can be really, 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 really rude and wrong. Because there's so many people who, after only two attempts, are saying, "Oh, NASA couldn't, you know, punch its way out of a wet paper bag." No, not really, folks. This is the best engineering people on the planet, and they're dealing with a technology which is derived heritage from shuttle by design. There's there's new equipment, there's new hardware, but it's a 30, 40 year old design. Based around the shuttle design which used liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen in the main engines and of course we're reusing for the first two or three missions in the Artemis program uh, some of the same engines that actually flew into space on the shuttle when it was out in operation so they are well known well worn in uh, things have been replaced like seals and gaskets and when needed bearings and all that But they're basically really, really well-known engineering. So why are they having these problems? I think there needs to be someone paying attention to the possibility. Again, not a certainty, but a possibility given what's at stake to a saboteur, just like Jurassic Park. And we will know, I'm sure, if something like that is found uh, in in due course. Okay, moving on. Item number two, this is the proposed Artemis flight plan. Um, It uh, basically is not your uh, grandmother's Apollo three-day trip to the moon. As you can see, it's got this long looping trajectory. Uh, It takes them like a week to get there. That's to save fuel and stretch the consumables because they really want to stress all aspects of the spacecraft and the rocket and the upper stage and all this. So, even though the uh, Ryan spacecraft and service module are rated for 21 days with people on board, they're going to have a six week mission, uh, 42 days, give or take, uh, for Artemis one. So they overstress every aspect of the engineering when there are not people at risk. That's why you have an unmanned test flight or unpersoned test flight. Um, it wouldn't be NASA unless, of course, there was a hidden ritual, which means you want to go to item number three. Um, uh, okay, well, it says 3A. Anyway, it follows two, 3A. So this is a close-up of the uh, right-hand portion of the graph in item number two. This shows a schematic of the orbit. What immediately caught my eye is the size of the orbit on Artemis 1 at this farthest point because it's going to be a very long looping orbit around the moon um, that will take them uh, over a week to go around once, as opposed to two hours for Apollo. So seven days, seven tetrahedral days. And at the high point or the apogee, they will be 39,000 miles from the center of the moon. 39,000. Gosh, twice 19.5. See why I'm always suspicious of NASA? Because there's agendas, there's engineering, and then there's the ritual. Who is determining the ritual and to what end? Now, as I said uh, last Sunday, which is this is kind of a reprise of some of the things I went through last Sunday. When Artemis 1, it was initially going to launch, it would be joining two other unmanned missions, both of which are separately going to the moon one is called capstone the other is called denuri and that should be spelled with an a not an e Uh, that's a public note to Keith. my mistake my bad anyway uh, and there should be commas between capstone and denuri and artemis anyway um, the three missions were going to be simultaneously en route to the moon now that artemis 1 has been delayed a month um, the capstone mission is going to get to the moon on november 13th taking as you can see this very long looping low energy trajectory and the Danuri mission which is the south koreans unmanned spacecraft uh, launched uh, about three weeks ago i think now it will not get to the moon until december 17th so if the launch of artemis is sometime the third attempt is sometime in mid-october and it's a six-week mission give or take it means that artemis one will be orbiting the moon at the same time that the capstone mission is going into this very bizarre very elongated uh rectilinear retrograde orbit which is designed to test out the orbit for the upcoming gateway space station which will become a kind of a a way station for missions, human missions following uh, Artemis 3 to and from the south pole of the moon. In fact, if they rendezvous with Gateway and then use the lander, which will be kind of permanently parked as a second spacecraft, like a taxi going from the Gateway orbit down to the surface, they literally from that Gateway orbit will be able to reach every single area on the moon. No area, no region, no site, no interesting thing down there will be inaccessible to the ultimate mature Artemis overall mission plan because of Gateway. Well, for Gateway to work, they have to test the orbit with this unmanned 55-pound spacecraft called Capstone. And that will be en route arriving at the Moon, being inserted into orbit now while Artemis 1, presuming it launches successfully in mid-October, is toward the end of its six weeks orbiting the Moon. So we will have two missions going to the Moon, arriving uh, almost simultaneously, and that opens up interesting, very interesting possibilities. Okay. Item number four A, that is the Capstone spacecraft, little uh, CubeSat, weighs 55 pounds. It's 12. It's called a 12U, meaning 12 units of this modular unmanned uh, technology. Four B is the Danuri, spell correctly there, uh, artwork showing the South um, uh, Korean spacecraft, which, as I said, will be inserted into lunar orbit about a month after Capstone, and um, it. It basically is uh, uh, all going to happen, at least for Capstone and Artemis I, simultaneously, which, of course, opens up all kinds of intriguing possibilities. Because as I've said endlessly, and I will say endlessly, these missions, given that they are now equipped with state-of-the-art imaging technology, stunningly uh, precise and sensitive um, uh, digital electronic cameras capable of seeing essentially in the dark. Well, if these spacecraft uh, perform as, as designed, they will in fact be able to uh, spot anything unusual on the lunar surface up to and including the ancient artifacts that we know are waiting for humankind. And in the most benign interpretation of these inexplicable launch delays, there might be a reason why someone, for some reason, wants both missions, Artemis 1 and Capstone, to be orbiting the moon simultaneously in November. So what you want to do is you want to kind of hold that thought. You're on the other side of midnight. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to swing in to the meat of what there is waiting on the moon that someone either wants doubly verified or, flipping this upside down, someone does not want revealed. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
1: The Other Side of Midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes.
3: This planet was the home of a mighty and noble race of beings, which called themselves the Krell. Ethically, as well as technologically, they were a million years ahead of humankind. For in unlocking the mysteries of nature, they had conquered even their baser selves. And when in the course of eons they had abolished sickness and insanity and crime and all injustice, they turned, still with high benevolence, outward towards space. Long before the dawn of man's history, they had walked our earth and brought back many biological specimens. I see. That explains the tiger and the deer. The heights they had reached. But then, seemingly on the threshold of some supreme accomplishment, which was to have crowned their entire history, this all but divine race perished in a single night. In the 2,000 centuries, since that unexplained catastrophe, even their cloud-piercing towers of of glass and porcelain and adamantine steel have crumbled back into the soil of Altair IV, and nothing, absolutely nothing, remains above ground. What were they like? No record of their physical nature has survived, except perhaps in the form of this uh, characteristic arch. I suggest you consider it in comparison to one of our functionally designed human doorways. recording was made by Krell musicians a half a million years ago. Now, if you will follow me, I will
0: show you some of their other remaining artifacts. That is Dr. Morbius, um, actually uh, uh, Walter Pigeon, with a very famous peroration from one of my favorite films, which is Forbidden Planet. Because as I've said many times on the show, and someday we're going to do an entire program where we take apart where we deconstruct the movie Forbidden Planet step by step. Forbidden Planet is a kind of a cautionary tale in terms of what we're now facing with going back to the moon. In other words, I believe based on something like 20 or 30 years of research and a whole bunch of colleagues all over the world who have independently looked at this data, some of which you're going to be hearing when we bring the team back together tomorrow night, we are looking at such extraordinary and awesome works of engineering that it's essentially like we are looking at the works of the long lost Krell. The staging, the scope, the scale of engineering, the sheer capacity create a dome around an entire planet, which is you know tens of miles high and covers an area of uh, more than uh, north and south america combined i am sure that when the nasa folks 50 plus years ago first looked at the imaging and data that they got back that they they, they basically balked they could not believe what they were seeing and the cover-up and the silence for the last half century in terms of what is there what is waiting for artemis to finally reveal to all humankind, waiting there for all of us on the moon, basically was put on standby because no one, certainly at any governmental level, even began to, to uh, think about how to properly present this staggering, stunning, awesome engineering reality to humankind. I mean, we literally, uh, 50 years ago, did not have the the background, the perspective, the decades-long of a culturization, as Brookings called for, of umpteen movies regarding starships and spaceflight and federations and aliens and ETs and interactions and fabulous, extraordinary works of engineering. Well, we're going to find out whether over 50 years the human race, particularly Americans, have gained any kind of perspective because what is waiting when Artemis and these two other unmanned missions finally reach the moon with their state-of-the-art, digital, incredibly high resolution and latitude color imaging cameras is nothing less than confronting face-to-face the wonders of the Krell. Which brings me to item number five. It turns out, And this is a very weird story. It turns out that about uh, nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, I was leaked extraordinary film from a super top secret, you know, can you say top secret compartmentalized special access program called Project Corona? Someone came up to me at a speech that I had given at one of Stephen Greer's events in Arizona. Where we had driven down, Robin and Moral and I had driven down. And of course, Morales thought that everybody, all the hundreds of conferees were convened uh, to see her. Uh, she, was, she was like that. She loved audiences. Anyway, after my speech, a guy kind of came up to the stage and he said, you know, the fatal words, can we talk? So we went over into a corner, and everybody else is milling around, and they're going to the bar, and there's a kind of – I guess it was late in the afternoon. There was a dinner break, and then we would reconvene. So we basically were over against the corner, and he says, I'm from Houston, and I have a whole roll of film from Project Corona. Would you like to have it? And I looked at him, and I thought to myself – is this guy for real? Because, you know, when you're you're a public person, a lot of folks come up to you and they they tell you or they ask you very strange things. So it turned out it was for real. Um, Without going into a long, complicated peroration as to what happened, how I briefly had access to the film, I was able to verify that it contained extraordinary images of the moon, which I found astonishing because... Corona was supposed to be a program, uh, the first spy satellite program, looking down on the Soviet Union to see if there indeed was a missile gap, if the Russians were going to launch a you know secret nuclear attack day after tomorrow, that kind of thing. And the idea that, according to the film that I was able to briefly see, an entire roll of hundreds and hundreds of frames were all devoted not to a missile base, not to Russian airfields, not to anything of national security, but looking across a quarter million miles from low Earth orbit at the moon and frame after frame after frame of the moon. I mean, to me, it was mind-boggling and incredibly revealing all at the same time. And then weird things happened. And aside from a few frames of this priceless film – which I presented last Sunday night, and I'm going to present them again tonight briefly so that you can see the context of what we're talking about. The actual once top, top secret special access Project Corona program film, which briefly fell into my lap, was whisked away and never to return. But I do have a few frames, including the most important one. So let's go to item number six. When you're talking about photographing the moon, looking for ruins, remember the moon, even though it's smaller than the Earth, about a quarter of the size, its total surface area, front and back, is equivalent to North and South America combined. And that's what this uh, illustration uh, in item number six is showing us. Can you imagine even with a satellite uh, looking for something specific in an area the size of the United States portion of the North American continent or North and South America together? But that's what apparently had happened, and I was incredibly fortunate to be leaked a portion of this film. Well, obviously what had to have happened – for this to all come true is what you see in item number seven. If you look at number seven, uh, there on the right is a cutaway of the Corona spacecraft, which basically was a super flying spatial uh, film camera and photographic laboratory combined. And what they would do is they would take pictures with a special set of cameras, two cameras for stereo. and the, the amount of film that they exposed over the period of each mission was about a month. So they exposed like a, over a mile, 5,000 plus feet of film, which was unwound from a supply reel, went through the cameras, was wound up in a take-up reel, sealed in a capsule, and then ejected and physically reentered uh, the Earth's atmosphere and was picked up by a flying Air Force uh, aircraft over the Pacific on a kind of a trapeze, snagged in midair. The capsule brought to a uh, CIA Air Force base uh, ground station. The film was developed. It was then flown to Langley and a whole bunch of photo interpreters with you know magnifying glasses and loops put it on light tables and looked avidly at every square inch looking ostensibly in the corona program for all the secret Soviet missile bases and airfields and other uh, appurtenances of their military industrial complex. Remember, this was at the height of the Cold War where Khrushchev had turned down Eisenhower's proposal for what he called open skies, which would have had aircraft flying over both nations. So what we did, what Eisenhower did, is opt for the uh, CIA's planned Project Corona instead. Okay, item number eight. This is a frame of the film. This is directly from the negative. A positive has been made, and it was that positive that I was able to get hold of one of the frames. On the right, you see a series of dials next to the image of the moon, a nice gibbous moon. On the left, you see some writing. Uh, If you look at number nine, this is where things get really weird because I said – last weekend, it's obvious someone wanted me to have this copy of this film because they wrote my name on it, literally sitting there in Houston waiting for me to come and pick it up. Now, if you go back to item eight, you'll see in those dials, the second one from the top, when you enlarge it, which is item number 10, you can see that it's a little label uh, of equipment inside the spacecraft, which with every frame, the label is also simultaneously imaged on the same photograph. And you see uh, some words, some letters rather, and numbers. S-O-226. Well, I instantly, when I saw this, and the number below it, 8-1-66, that's when this mission flew. August, August 1st of 1966, when the uh, corona program was launched back in 1959. So this is now maturing technology, three years after President Kennedy uh, has been, has died, uh, had been assassinated. And the program went on from 59 to 1972 through a series of additional, more advanced spacecraft. But Corona, for its entire life, did not depend on electronically transmitting uh, images from orbit. They literally kept dropping canisters of film, picking up the film, taking it to the lab, developing it, and then scanning the developed film with human photographic interpreters at CIA headquarters at Langley and other places. So it's the best resolution uh, from orbit that we had up until the era of modern digital imaging. I mean, you really can't beat film for resolution even now. So... You look at this label, it says SO226. I recognize that as a film type because way back then when this all went down, like nine years ago or so, uh, I didn't really understand the photographs and the political soap opera surrounding me never being able to get access to the entire roll of film, which I desperately wanted because I wanted to see how many images they took and if they took them through various phases Of the moon's illumination because that will play into on a major part what we see on the film Sun angle is important so it wasn't until relatively recently the last couple of months that I in preparing for these shows around the Artemis 1 launch had a chance to go in and realize that that label was telling me about the film type so now you go to number 11 if you look up on the internet you can find The sensitivity curves and the spectral range of Kodak SO, that's special order, film 226. It turns out it's an infrared ultraviolet film, meaning if you expose the film with a filter uh, between the lens and the film in the camera, you can either look at the infrared, which is kind of like extended color, It's not thermal, it's not heat, It just is the long, long ultra-red end of the spectrum out to about 900 angstroms if you look at the uh, uh, graph underneath the the curves. Whereas in the short range, um, the film is sensitive, in fact very sensitive, look at the height of the curve, all the way out to something like 250 angstroms, uh, which is very, very short beyond the violet range. Now, why is that important? Because anything short of around 300 angstroms, again, nanometers and angstroms are the same. An angstrom is a billionth of a meter, a nanometer. Nano is billionth, okay? So what what they had is on board a film that in the vacuum of space above the atmosphere, because the atmosphere does not transmit ultraviolet beyond around 3 Hundred angstroms or 300 nanometers. So they had a whole region in the far ultraviolet uh, on this scale, which had never been explored before, and they obviously uh, put quartz lenses in the spacecraft that was taking these images. Why quartz? Because ordinary glass stops ultraviolet, whereas quartz transmits it seamlessly and losslessly. So all you would do is to change the lenses in the standard Project Corona camera, you'd roll the spacecraft, so instead of looking down at the Soviets, it was looking up uh, like in uh, uh, image number seven across the quarter million miles to the moon, and you'd take a lot of pictures. And according to my my leaker, the entire roll, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of frames, I don't really know how long the roll was because I never physically had my hands on it. This was done kind of by remote control at some point, but there were at least several hundred frames and maybe several thousand, every one of them taken of the moon, not one frame of a Soviet missile base down below. So item number 12, this is an actual side-by-side comparison of the uh, uh, Corona ultraviolet imagery. How do you get ultraviolet images of the moon? simple you put a infrared filter in the camera so it doesn't see the infrared part of the spectrum it only sees the ultraviolet and then you just take pictures and what you can see if you look carefully and of course each of these you can blow them up by simply clicking on them if you look carefully side by side and you have to scan back and forth because they're very large the same features you see on the moon taken from the ground in visible light on the right are not the same features you see on the ground, on the moon, through the ultraviolet corona image taken on the left. There are differences. I mean, there's, there's haze, there's obscuration. It looks like there's a cloudy day on the moon, which of course is impossible. So what's really going on? Obviously, something is intervening between the camera in low Earth orbit across the vacuum of space and the surface of the moon. What is that something? That is the globe-wide, lunar-wide, moon-wide, incredibly crell like super-advanced, ancient lunar dome. And it covers, to more or less degree, depending upon damage and holes and uh, light attenuation, it covers, from the data we now have, the entire moon. It's not just one dome over a crater. It's literally like you wrap saran wrap around a beach ball. It covers to the height of several tens of miles. And you can see that in the imagery and do the scaling. It covers the entire moon. Now, can you imagine the CIA when they looked at this? First of all, why did they look at this? Why was an agency tasked to after World War II, keep us safe from all enemies foreign, particularly the uh, the communists, you know, the the red menace, the Soviets, why were they incredibly using one of these very special, very expensive, super top secret missions, at least one, I think it was more than one, but at least one, to look not down at the earth, not at a national defense problem, But at the moon, did they have other information that the real ultimate threat to the United States of America is not then the Soviets or now the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians or the Saudis or any of the other, you know, list of bad guys? Remember the evil list that uh, George Bush created of the of the evil empires? Um, What if the CIA was working off some kind of intelligence that the real potential threat to the United States, to the citizens of America, to ultimately all the denizens of planet Earth was not from other nations squabbling amongst each other. Even with nuclear weapons, in fact, it would come from outer space, and it may, in fact, come from the moon. I mean, remember what the CIA was created to do, to be an early warning system against threats, foreign threats to the uh, well-being of American citizens. So if you look at number 13, this is merely a comparison between the uh, corona ultraviolet image of the lunar dome, showing that well-known features like Plato, which you can see easily on the right uh, with comparisons uh, from Earth-based telescopes, in the ultraviolet shot in space, where it should be crystal clear, because there are no clouds between low-Earth orbit and the Moon. Instead, there are incredible obscurations. Obviously, we're dealing with some material substance, the glass in this model of the domes, blocking a clear view of surface detail, which is easily visible in longer-wavelength Illumination. Why? Because as I've said for decades now, and in part it's based on this physics, the physics of optics are that if you have the material and it's pulverized into little, little, teeny, tiny pieces that are on the order of the wavelength of light that you're trying to look at the object with, in this case, something on the order of two to three hundred angstroms like incredibly ground up bits of glass with the consistency of cigarette smoke hanging in a matrix after being pounded by micrometeorite abrasion for unknown millions of years. There's not a lot of this dome left, but there's enough to make itself visible if if you look in the right short wavelength part of the spectrum. So again, how did the CIA know to do all this? Did they have some kind of intelligence up to including maybe secret, sacred documents preserved from thousands, or maybe, depending upon who passed what to whom, through millions of unknown years of human history prior to the uh, primitive times of the let's say the Neolithic, speculation. But we can find out someday if we find the libraries on the moon. Anyway, item number 14. Um, my, My question about how long they did this was answered by the scan of number 14 because as you can see in number 13 or in number 12, the image on the left, that's an almost full moon. That's a gibbous moon, as we call it. But the image on the, on the bottom, 14 and then 15, that's obviously a first quarter moon, which means the spacecraft, Corona, was taking pictures for at least a month and a half until the moon got around again to first quarter because it takes about a month for the moon to go through all its phases. So it meant that during the entire operational life of this particular Corona mission, If I can believe my source, the leaker in Houston, and he said the entire film was taken up with nothing but lunar images. They spent an entire month plus photographing across space, not the Earth, not the Russian missile silos, but the moon. Why? Because different phase angles between the Earth and the moon and the sun create different sun angle illumination of the dome. And that in turn, combined with the wavelength in which you're taking the pictures, allows you to calculate the size of the surviving fragments of glass, the tiny little particles, making up the remnant ancient, very holy, and I use that term uh, advisedly, ancient lunar dome. And so you can basically gauge the physics of what has survived over millions of years by taking pictures at more than one lunar phase, even from the Earth. And that's what you see in 15. You see my effort to kind of penetrate the haze, do some enhancement, um, and you can see are regions, particularly down around the south lunar pole, which is at the bottom of the, of the disk, where there is actually uh, apparently geometric fragments, larger fragments in a coherent matrix form, You can actually see the grid pattern if you really zoom in of denser portions of the still surviving dome. So the dome over the entire 15 million square miles of lunar surface is not the same density or in the same state of degradation all over the moon. And you can see this illustrated in number 16, where there's a schematic showing that when you look from the Earth, To the uh, center of the lunar disk, you're looking straight down through this uh, purported dome, which is the shortest path length, but when you're looking at the edge, what they call the lunar limb at the horizon, circular horizon, all around the edge of the moon, you're looking through the greatest optical path of surviving dome material, so there's more crud in the way, scattering sunlight, and it will show up As it does in photograph after photograph after photograph, as you'll see shortly, it shows up as a bright ring, a lit illuminated band completely surrounding the moon, like a wedding ring surrounding something placed inside. And it's that ring around the moon, hugging the moon's surface, extending from the surface we can see up several tens of miles With decreasing density, and oh, it comes in layers, we now know from the photography I've been able to identify both from NASA, from Apollo, from talented amateurs who've done the photographs from Earth and have no idea what they've been photographing. Again, if you don't have the context and you see something in a photo, you'll probably just assume that you don't know enough to know what it is, and you'll move on. Well, between the time of Corona and these photographs, in 2009, another mission, uh, this time a NASA mission, an unmanned mission, went to the moon. This was in October of 2009. It was a combined mission to smash an upper-stage Centaur rocket, fueled by liquid hydrogen, developed by my friend uh, Kraft Ereke, the same technology being used in Artemis this morning, just decades down the road and an upper spacecraft attached to it called the Shepherding spacecraft and the idea was that when they got close to the moon the two spacecraft would decouple the Centaur would smash into the moon at something like 5000 miles an hour while the Shepherd spacecraft interesting name shepherd trailing several hundred miles behind by that time would be taking photographs and data and would examine The enormous cloud of material kicked up by the high-energy explosion of smashing an upper rocket stage at several thousand miles an hour on the moon. And if you look at item number 18, well, we're going to wait because, well, we're at the top of the hour. I'm my only guest this morning. We're talking about why Artemis may be sabotaged. Why someone really doesn't want the Artemis manned flights to return to the moon and are doing some kind of bizarre delaying action, or in the alternative, why they want the prototype Artemis spacecraft, which will someday in a couple of years carry humans, and the unmanned capstone mission to be there simultaneously. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you.
3: Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day.
0: Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available.
4: Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com
0: And welcome back everyone to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, (laughs) September 3rd, the day, the evening when they were supposed to launch Artemis 1 on its six-week journey to and from the moon, ringing out the system with really overstressing it like a mission length twice the 21 days of the normal nominal Artemis missions when they're really underway. And the rocket itself in terms of trajectory and uh, endurance and fueling and temperatures and you know all that good stuff instead we're talking tonight waiting for the next opportunity which will probably not take place for at least now a month the middle of October in which case if the launch gets off the uh, pad successfully then The unmanned Artemis One spacecraft, loaded with its incredible high-resolution color HD cameras, will join the Capstone mission with its cameras, both of which are capable of verifying up close and personal, and most critically, redundantly, what is waiting on the Moon. So, let's get back to it. So where were we here, I was at item number, uh, checking here, item number 17. Uh, item number 18, well, <clears throat> it also took uh, the uh, the lacrosse mission, also took a kind of a slow boat to China. So it took a couple of months to go from Earth orbit to lunar orbit, and in that so doing, a couple of months before the uh, ultimate crash of the uh, centaur on the moon they did a lunar swing by. And they had cameras on board the Lacrosse Crosse uh, Shepherding spacecraft, which covered not only the visible spectrum, but also the infrared. And this time, the thermal infrared, so they could look at heat across the moon. And this is astonishing because when you look at the visible image, one of those few that they released, one look reveals why Uh, there's been such squirreliness around the entire lacrosse mission. For instance, I did not know until a few days ago when I just kind of upped the saturation that instead of black and white camera, they actually had a color camera. They had a high-quality color digital camera on lacrosse, but they didn't put out any of the images in color. The only way I found out was just one afternoon kind of playing around, and I increased the saturation, and lo and behold, bingo. What you see on number 18 popped out. This is a shot of the far side of the moon. Remember, the side which is always turned away from Earth, which we can never see from Earth because the moon rotates around the Earth as the same period of time that it takes to revolve on its axis. So it's called a synchronous tidally locked orbit where you only see one side, the so-called near side. The far side, called the far side because we never see it, is 180 degrees away behind the moon. <clears throat> but Lacrosse was looking very close a few hundred miles away at this far side. And when you simply raise the color saturation back to normal, you see stunning details that confirm every single thing that I've been saying. For instance, look around the edge. You see that incredibly reddish band on the left at one pole of the moon and the greenish, band on the on the right at the other pole hugging the moon like a like a layer that's the dome in fact that's the glass dome refracting sunlight prismatically creating a spectrum and because of the angle between the sun remember you're looking at a first or last quarter moon so sunlight is coming from the top at an angle at right angles to the terminator which is the line between light and dark at the bottom slightly tilted um, and then all that color in between those wonderful shades of mauve and pinkish and purplish and blue and blue green. That's the scattering and refraction of light within the much denser surviving portions of the dome on the lunar far side compared to the much lower density of the um, uh, lunar mirror side. So, uh, and I will carry out Keith's instructions. Okay, doing this now. All right, have done it. Go ahead. Um, anyway, um, that is a incredibly interesting color image taken in two thousand nine in October. I'm sorry, in, in in June prior to the October uh, mission, you know, uh, climax. And nobody except Med Media few in NASA. Have known what it really shows it 's a stunning view of the other side of the moon and the incredible surviving regions of the dome, which brings us to number nineteen Number nineteen is a comparison between the original what I thought was black and white version uh, of that image. Uh, the little round uh, dark spot in the upper upper left is a is a feature on the far side named uh, by the Russians the Moscow Sea because they photographed it first with their first uh, far uh, side image um, when they sent their first spacecraft past the moon uh, looking back at the far side of the moon and that very very it's a very bad photograph but you can see the Moscow Sea stands out as one of the few dark marae on the far side of the moon the near side and the far side look dramatically different not the least of which we now know, I know, is because the density of the dome, surviving dome, again, covering all the moon, is so much higher on the far side than the side that we can see, and there's a bunch of physics reasons um, for us to uh, uh, go through maybe later on this morning, or maybe tomorrow morning. Anyway, that's the image on the left. The image on the right is a simultaneous long-wave infrared thermal temperature infrared image showing the same geometric perspective only with an infrared camera. And what you want to do is you want to look very carefully at that image on the right because it comes with interesting layers. The blues are the coldest temperatures on the moon. Remember, the moon goes from about 250 degrees Fahrenheit above zero uh, during the daytime to about minus 250 at night, a 500-degree Fahrenheit temperature swing. So this image shows us in various colors, from blue to blue-green to green to yellow to red, the various temperatures of the moon. And the red, of course, is the highest temperatures. Uh, it's high noon. If that's a quarter moon, it means the moon is shining, the sun is shining directly down on that portion of the moon. Uh, and you were, if you were there. You, the sun will be overhead, so the temperatures are highest, like 250 above zero. And at the bluest part, at the, at the Terminator, in the bottom right-hand corner, it's like about 250 below. So very good infrared imaging camera. And as you look, you can see it's all very nice and logical. The mid-latitudes are moderate temperatures, the greens and the yellows. And then you get into the super high temperatures of the red. And then, oh, wait. What's that yellow band around the edge, around the limb of the moon? I mean, there should be nothing there. In the normal interpretation of an airless moon, you should see a red curve and then black space, which in this representation is is purple, all right, Uh, because of the way the camera was set The black space turns out purple in this imaging presentation in the across camera. Where did that yellow band come from? Well, it's obvious. It's something physical absorbing just enough sunlight to heat up to moderate temperatures, not the above boiling temperatures of the surface seen in bright red below, and not as cold as the very dark blue band just above and then the purplish view of uh, the 2.7 Kelvin space itself. What is that yellow band? Oh, my gosh. That's, again, another totally independent physics view of the surviving lunar dome. Except in this case, you're seeing it edge on Remember the diagram a couple images above showing when you look through the long path length tangent to the lunar surface and look through hundreds of miles of the tiny fragments of glass still making up the surviving dome it mounts up it adds up and so you get what's called a blocking optical depth and it absorbs energy and it is then radiating infrared like it's of moderate temperatures because there's a balance between the size of the particles absorbing heat from the sun and the spaces in between, which allow that those particles to radiate the heat effectively away. So you get a moderate temperature. Oh my gosh. Now you go to number 20. This is merely an enlargement showing that the band is the same size, the same depth, the same height uh, as the, optical band of light circling the moon not only in other spacecraft imaging from lacrosse but if you look at 21 you can see it's the same width as the optical band detected in the gambit slash uh, corona satellite imagery of the moon's dome taken from earth sometime in 1966 in august of 66 on infrared ultraviolet film and again, the infrared in that uh, spacecraft was merely uh, red light, ultra red light, having nothing to do with thermal uh, emission of energy. So I put side by side the LaCrosse infrared imagery and the Project Corona black and white imagery taken in the ultraviolet, and you can see along the limb the same band of brightness. In other words, LaCrosse was seeing the infrared of the actual dome radiating heat back into space. Item number 22. Everybody knows that I love independent confirmation of scientific data. So if you look at 22, this is a microwave uh, image taken by a radio telescope by the AFCRL. That's the Air Force Cambridge Research Laboratory, probably one of the big antennas at uh, the Haystack Air Force Base in um, in um, uh, western eastern massachusetts north of boston it's a microwave lunar temperature gradient and you can say that we see the same pattern of light and dark and color ascribed to the same temperatures the bright reddish is the highest temperature below the uh, uh, sun at high noon on the moon the yellow is moderate temperatures the green even lower and then you have blue green behind that and because it's a gibbous moon you're not seeing into the dark side uh the night side um, so you don't see any of the colder temperatures but if you look to the left of the red glow you'll see a yellow layer and then above that a blue greeny layer and those are the higher layers of the remaining optically thick glass dome in a trillion, trillion, trillion little fragments, which are being warmed by sunlight, re-radiating their heat away, and they show up as moderate temperatures, even though they're miles above the actual solid surface of the Moon. Which brings us to number 23. Now this is really interesting. There is a presentation in a polar view, that's the upper circles of the infrared scanning of the Moon in the Chang one unmanned mission sent by the Chinese into lunar orbit before they landed. And then down below, you see a Mercator projection from 60 north to 60 south of the same data seen in the what they call polar uh, stereo views in the upper part of the diagram. What you wanna do is you wanna look at about 50 degrees north and south, and you'll see that it goes from the red areas which are the highest temperatures near the equator. And then they get cooler and yellowish and then greenish as you go north and south. And then suddenly there is a yellow band, a yellow band, both north and south on the Chinese data. What in God's name would make the moon go from a beautiful smooth gradient where it's high temperatures under the sun at the equator, high noon, and then the temperature Falls off neatly with increasing latitude, just to the reason why on Earth you have lower temperatures when you go north and south of the equator, due to solar insulation. Where is that yellow band coming from, and why is it symmetric, and why is there suddenly a higher temperature band just going around the moon like a like 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 a wedding band in both hemispheres, north and south? Well, that's obviously the dome in projection and the computer does not know that there are multiple layers to the moon in terms of vertical altitude so when it puts together the mercator plot it plots the dome temperatures seen tangentially edge on as a band on the surface at that latitude north and south because that's the projection angle as The temperature gradient was seen from the orbiting Chinese unmanned spacecraft Chang-1 at 37 gigahertz, which is high uh, microwave range. In other words, again, a totally different political system, totally different technology, a totally different time frame has verified a high temperature, relatively speaking, covering a shell around the moon at these moderate temperatures as seen on the Mercator projection of the Chang one data independent confirmation, not only from another technology and another spacecraft, but from another political source, the Chinese. I love it. Good grief. This is called independent confirmation, which takes us to item number 24. Turns out back in 1946 after World War II, the Army had a bunch of uh, high-powered radars kind of lying around, and some bright folks at, uh, uh, I believe it was Columbia University and Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, where the U.S. Army Signal Corps hangs out, they said to themselves and to each other, hey, what if we use these high-powered radars and try to bounce radar off the moon? I mean, they were thinking ahead. Even then, some people were contemplating that someday we, the United States, would send spacecraft with people on board someday to the moon. So the more information we could garner from the moon, the better. And so back in January of 46, they set up something called Project Diana. Uh, Diana is the Roman name for Artemis in the Greek. Diana is the Roman goddess of the moon, and they you can see the antenna there at the Monmouth and a photograph overexposed of the moon, and the idea was you fire up the transmitter, you send several hundred kilowatts, I'm sorry, several thousand kilowatts of energy in a beam uh, toward the moon, and then you listen for the echo. And image number 25 is the graph of the actual first confirmed data received you see the spike on the left that's the transmission leakage picked up by the receiver since the receiver and the antenna are only a few hundred feet away then you see the noise in between as the signal is flying out at the speed of light and one and a quarter seconds after it leaves the antenna at the average moon distance it strikes the moon it's reflected back and that's what that little bump on the right side of the graph in number twenty-five is showing us the echo picked up by the receiver tuned to the same uh, frequency. I think it was sixteen hundred uh, megahertz, megacycles, uh, back in uh, late June of nineteen forty-six. And of course, it was written up in the New York Times and covered on television and in all the major magazines and newspapers. And it was a big historic moment. Take a look carefully. Click on that link, and that will blow it up a bit for you. Take a look carefully. Why is the blip on the right, the echo returning from the moon, not the same narrow blip as the echo of the transmitted pulse over on the left? Why is it wider? The reason it's shorter is because the echo is much, much quieter. It's much fainter because of the inverse fourth power law. Inverse square going out, inverse square coming back. But why is it wide? Ah, thereby hangs a lunar tail. Because what we're seeing, and I went into this in more detail last Sunday night, so if you're a member of Club 19.5, hint, hint, you can listen in great detail to my description then. But the simple answer is, and you can see it in the diagram, the blue waves of the signal going out, The red waves are the first pulse coming back what are the little green waves they're the delayed echo from the rattling around the bouncing around of this particular frequency 1600 gigahertz i'm sorry megahertz in the surviving glass of the surviving lunar dome bouncing like an ion like an artificial ionosphere completely around the moon again and again and again and finally radiating into space and in our direction our receivers picked it up and you can see the little bump there on the right of the graph in 25 it has a very definite width that it should not have if this energy was coming back like bouncing a laser off a uh, pinball as a brilliant reflection from the curving front surface no the delayed echo is because the radio waves were trapped between the layers of the ancient dome, and we have now three different spectroscopic regions, visible, thermal infrared, and radio, all physically interacting with the dome and showing us three totally independent confirmations that this cockamamie, Krell-like model is in fact real. Get used to it. NASA took 50 years to finally I think, get used to it, because I believe, if all these projections are correct, that politically, in November and December, NASA and its subcontractors, the the South Koreans with the Denuri mission and the Capstone people with the mission that arrives in mid-November, and Artemis, which will be in orbit with its cameras in mid-November, all three will have to announce, because the data And the imagery will be overwhelming that there, in fact, is an extraordinary ancient lunar scale ancient structure covering the moon. And then that will be the cat among the pigeons for real, as my grandmother would have said, which brings us to item number 27. This is a surface panorama assembled from the Hasselblatt actual color film film taken by the astronauts on the surface. Uh, This, the camera was on Buzz Aldrin. So this is one of the few images in the entire Apollo 11 mission where we can actually see Neil Armstrong in a lunar photograph. All the other photographs of the astronauts on the moon in Apollo 11 imagery is basically uh, Aldrin because it was um, Armstrong who had the camera. For this particular picture to take this panorama, Armstrong gave the one camera. Why did they only have one camera? That was dumb. And gave it to Aldrin, who went out several hundred feet from the lunar module, looked back and took this panorama. There's the flag, the horizon, the sun glint out of frame at the upper right. There's uh, Neil uh, taking uh, uh, equipment out of the MESA, which was the onboard equipment carrier in the descent stage of the lunar module. He's opening up the panel there. And in the background, you can see the the kind of lumpy lunar horizon a couple of miles away because the moon is so much smaller than the earth and then you see black space above it with just a hint of something interesting well if you simply increase the contrast in number 28 bingo there if you click on it is in stunning geometric detail the ancient lunar dome the surviving trillions of sparkling sun scattering fragments, suspended in a geometric scaffolding over the dome, over the, the moon's surface, over Apollo 11. And of course, you're gonna say immediately, oh, well, then you gotta be nuts. If that thing is that dense, how did they successfully land and take off? Because you're forgetting the consistency of the surviving optical fragments in this model Confirmed by the far UV imagery from the CIA Corona mission in 1960, yeah, 1960, August 18th, 1960, the first successful Corona mission. The particles are incredibly tiny. They have essentially no mass and they are simply interacting with the light and showing us the presence of a much one time infinitely denser dome, which now is so thin and fragmented that a spacecraft can literally go through it without even knowing it has gone through a physical layer of something that should not be there. In other words, it's optically conspicuous. It's physically almost non-existent because it is, oh, 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 so old, which brings us to number 29. Number 29 is a photograph from uh, Apollo 12, which was the uh, mission on which Alan Bean was one of the two astronauts on the lunar surface. Remember, Alan Bean was asked by Newsweek uh, what the sky looked like, the vacuum of space looking up from the moon. And he said something so peculiar that just resonated in my mind. He said, well, it's not like black velvet. In other words, it doesn't absorb all light, which, of course, in terms of physics, you would expect he said it looks like a pair of black patent leather shoes. Now think about this. We now know that he came home, Alan Bean came home, and became an incredible professional artist, painting again and again and again, his and Pete Conrad's experience in Apollo 11, Apollo 12 rather, on the moon, as well as all the other missions when he had talked to the other crew members. But his memory, his physical memory of what the sky above the airless moon looked like was like a pair of black patent leather shoes. And what makes them unusual and unique? They sparkle with delicate, faint glints of light. Even though they're black, they have reflective highlights. In other words, he was describing as an artist the incredibly Saint, still visible to the human eye, ghostly glass reflections of the surviving fragments of the ancient glass dome above the moon. So we reached the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a pause. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and when we come back, we're going to get into some really interesting additional information that we have now retrieved from our perusal of endless amounts of archival material that I've been saving from every conceivable mission up to and including terrestrial amateur astronomers, which overwhelmingly when put together demonstrate that in fact there is an ancient dome above the moon and Artemis One, in a month may be able to confirm it. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
1: Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Thought Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com.
0: Welcome back everyone on this saturday night september 3rd 2022 the the was supposed to leave and now it did not because of a hydrogen fuel flow problem that we kind of over explained in the first part of the show so you can go back and take a listen but it turns out now they can't leave for at least a month they have to roll back to the vehicle assembly building and that will put the timing of the artemis 1 unmanned mission orbiting the moon The same time frame as the unmanned Capstone mission, both of which can confirm with one carefully timed high-resolution color digital image everything I have been talking about for the last uh, hour and a half. The question is, will they? Okay, resuming where we were, if I click a couple of dials here and get into the mode here. Okay, so number 30. Um, it became very interesting and to me kind of crucial that when he got back from the uh, uh, November of 1969 mission with Pete Conrad to the surface of the moon on Apollo 12, Alan Bean turned into one hell of an artist and his themes basically were confined to his and Pete's experience on the moon and then all the other astronauts and endlessly interesting variations on a theme. This one is really intriguing because he started out doing paintings that kind of looked like what NASA uh, has given us, you know, stark black and white sky, gray surface, brilliant white spacesuits. Little blue stub antennas, gold faceplates, gold foil on the lunar module, that kind of thing. And then as time went on, his photographs took on, his photographs, his his artwork, his illustrations, his paintings took on a much more interesting aspect until finally, and if you go to his website, just look for Alan Bean uh, and it will take you to his uh, uh, surviving artist studio website there in Houston. He died a couple years ago, so he's no longer with us to ask. But he, his, his paintings took on this surreal, almost fantasy aspect where he says in print, he was projecting his mood and attitude and how walking on the moon made him feel in terms of how it came out on the canvas. But if you look at this in another way, and uh, uh, Andrew Curry uh, is gonna talk about this in some length with some new illustrations tomorrow night when we bring the uh, the gang back for the kind of debrief on what we've been hearing over the last couple weekends from our data. Um, Andrew and I are of the opinion that because Bean was an artist and he was expressing his most inner feelings through the right brain of artistic emotional connection to reality, to the subject, to the environment in which he lived, uh, unlike left brain people, you know, logical, metonymic, just the science, just the facts, man, et cetera, that somehow he was able to kind of bypass the very obvious filters, the psychological filters, the programming that I now know for 100% the astronauts were all subjected to when they came back. How do I know this? Because I somehow got in with a bad crowd of ex-CIA people in Wyoming at the uh, uh, conference that we held there many years ago. And the wife of the guy holding the conference, who wound up really taking me into a separate room and threatening me for laying out any information on the moon, his wife was a doctor who was part of the Lunar Astronaut Quarantine in Houston for 22 days during their debriefing. And she would not. She kept orbiting around the conference and her own home where I was staying in a guest room. She would not ever sit down and have a conversation, let alone act like a normal hostess to someone who had been in the CIA, who was hosting a conference in you know a little tiny town there in Wyoming. So I know the astronauts were programmed and I've gone into details of how I know this and more of the story is in uh, uh, Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA, which describes at some length the the, uh, manned Apollo missions. Anyway, that painting in number 30 is how Alan Bean said it made him feel to walk on the moon. Well. Actually, it's also a hell of a good portrayal of what happens if you have basically the lunar surface under sunlight under glass and the glass is refracting incredible rainbow mirages and splashes of color and overlapping shades of the spectrum and the ultra white spacesuits for thermal control is basically acting as a white movie screen. And so on the surface of the spacesuit, you see all these multicolored rainbows, which are coming from the glass miles above the moon, between the moon and the sun. And then if you look at 31, uh, on the left is Bean's uh, painting. On the right is a photograph that he took of, I believe, uh, Pete Conrad. I'm sorry, uh, Pete Conrad took of him backing out of the lunar module right after they landed. And remember, the standard NASA model is, you're on an airless world, the sky is pitch black, the, the, the ground is basically gray, sunlight is drenching the surface, you're in the shadow of the lunar module when you exit the porch and go down the ladder. Um, Conrad is at the base looking up with the Hasselblad camera and he's photographing Alan Bean descending the ladder. That spacesuit is supposed to be pure white. Why is it pastel shades of orangish, violet, mauve, cyan, and purple? Where is all that color coming from? It should be just white, dim because it's in the shadow. And it's only getting kickback light from the surrounding lunar surface. But why is it pastel shades of color? Because the lunar surface is a riot of color. In reality, from the refraction of sunlight prismatically through the surviving trillions of little particles of the dome. Now, confirmation of this comes from all places, from the Soviet Union because back when we were sending images, uh, images, crews to the lunar surface, the Russians were trying to do the same thing and not, not succeeding. But one of their cosmonauts, a brilliant guy named Alexei Leonov, who was the first cosmonaut to actually spacewalk in the history of either space program, Americans or Russians. Remember, the Russians beat us to the first satellite, the first men in lunar orbit, Yuri Gagarin, and then the first astronaut or cosmonaut to exit a spacecraft in Earth's orbit and actually float free outside in the first spacewalk. That guy was Leonov. Leonov turned out to be, just like Alan Bean, an incredibly talented artist. So if he had been subject to the same kind of brainwashing that our guys were subject to member of the Soviet Union, they had no compunctions. Then this picture is very very weird because the cosmonauts and astronauts, as members of a very unique club, remember the uh, joint Skylab mission, the Russian Soviet joint uh, space mission in Earth orbit in uh, 19, I think 75. So the, the cosmonauts and astronauts would talk to each other. And eventually we wound up doing joint missions. That's after the Cold War was kind of brought to a close and NASA and the Russians kind of collaborated, as they're doing tonight, with the uh, International Space Station. Anyway, Leonov layoff, layoff at one point painted this photograph of a cosmonaut, because it's not wearing a polarized spacesuit, uh standing next to a obviously crashed Soviet unmanned spacecraft with a with another one up in front it's kind of like a tableau of their successful unmanned missions the luna missions the first crash landers the the first uh soft landers etc and then look at the landscape around him it's mu- it's colored it's not black and white it's not gray. it's got all kinds of color and then look at the earth overhead hanging above the horizon and then look at that layering, which is obviously extending in Leonov's painting from the lunar horizon up to just about halfway to where, again, schematically in this painting, uh, the Earth is behind it, and then you get space above that. In other words, Alexei Leonov painted much more forthrightly than Alan Bean the existence of a glittering layer of something that had a finite depth, a finite height above the moon, above which you could see space and the stars and below which you saw things through a glass darkly. And it's not really obscured. It's right hanging out there. So did the Soviets know what the CIA found out back in 1960 after the first successful corona-unmanned reconnaissance mission returned its film? And then, of course, the question is, at what point did the President of the United States, given that the first successful corona mission was August of 1960, there were lots of missions of corona between then and when Kennedy was killed in November of 1963. Was it looking at some of the film from those early corona missions, one or more of which was turned to look at the moon with this 7-inch camera, which really was a 7-inch telescope, and were they was he able to see and have pointed out on that film laid out on the Resolute desk in the form of prints was President Kennedy briefed on the fact that there were incredibly massive ancient ET structures on the moon visible in top-secret, special access program images from Project Corona, and did he at that point decide not to go to the moon separately in competition, but was that the beginning of his outreach to Premier Khrushchev, first at the United Nations in September of 1963, and then in actual direct communication uh, between Khrushchev and himself in the White House, Up to the day he died in Dallas on November 22nd of 1963 was his sudden about face that he wanted the Russians to go to the moon with the Americans together in Apollo because his plan was for both nations representing the free and not free blocks of planet Earth. Circa 1963, was it his long-range plan to unveil the reality of this stunning architecture on the moon and on behalf of all humankind collaborate with the arch enemy of the the West, of the free world, with the arch director of the Soviet bloc, the non-free world, and was the plan to commiserate and share the data and explore together the ancient ruins on the moon, and was this the primary reason why just a few weeks later, John Kennedy was killed and Premier Khrushchev was basically walked up under house arrest to sit rocking in a rocking chair on his DACA porch until he died many years later, removed, stripped from being the head of the Soviet Union. Was it all because both men dared to explore the idea of jointly exploring the reality and the potential of ancient artifacts on the moon? My vote is yes, your job as the jury. And I want you to write in an email. I want you to send us your impressions. Have we made our case over the last And this weekend, to say nothing of the programs we have done before, how many of you really believe tonight that there's stuff there of extraordinary importance that will totally change the downward spiral of the human race into a totally new, positive, arcing flight into hitherto undreamed of possibilities, provided humanity together share what is waiting on the moon. I want you to tell me if we've made our case at the end of tonight's show. Item number 33, Uh, click on that. This is a uh, surface panorama taken on Apollo 16. I'm gonna skip most of the missions because you'll see why in a minute. It It was on this that I found my first confirmed evidence of rainbows over the moon. The chunks of glass much bigger than the cigarette smoke size normal particles have been photographed and you can see two of them creating slanted geometrically precise rainbows exactly opposite the sun. The sun is behind the astronaut taking this panorama and you see these slanted prisms caused by geometric refractions of the uh, large fragments of glass still in the dome some distance above the horizon. And all that incredibly reddish looking crud, that's the sunrise projection on the dome of sunrise behind the astronaut at about 10 degrees above the horizon. Number 34 is a close-up of this prism, uh, prism number two, the one on the right. And again, if there is nothing but vacuum above the moon, if there is no clouds, no glass dome, no anything, and if I'm totally bonkers and nuts, how do you have a slanted geometric prism with a top and a bottom? exactly 180 degrees, tilted at exactly the same angle as the example on the left, hanging above the lunar surface on an official NASA photograph archived in liquid nitrogen in Houston. Now, item number 35. We fast forward the film, pun intended, by about 40 years, and the Chinese send an unmanned robot, a little robot called U2, which means Jade Rabbit, and a lander to the moon to to crawl gently across the darkened surface of Mari Imbrium, which is a feature on the upper left hand front side of the moon. And they land provocatively at 44 degrees north and 19.5 degrees west. Gosh, 19.5 degrees. I've talked about this before, so we will not belabor why they did it. The images on the right, and if you click on this, it, it goes full screen, are compilations of individual surface Hasselblad color photography on film from Apollo's 14, uh, 15, uh, 16, and 17. All of them overwhelmingly, redundantly, again and again, on unsanitized versions of the Apollo surface imagery taken on the Hasselblad film and with the Hasselblad camera by the astronauts. Each one of these missions photographed the dome and the details from the inside, and NASA has been quietly replacing crappy copies of these films from decades ago with actual brand new, precisely exposed imagery, obviously getting ready for when the world and the press and the networks and the constituents and the American taxpayers look in these files for the first time in over half a century and go, Oh my God, these are all in the archive. Why didn't we see them before? And NASA will simply say, you didn't look, which brings me to the crucial reason for tonight's part two of, uh, what I did last weekend or part one of what we're going to do tomorrow night, because the, the key, to figuring out as citizens of the United States, citizens of the world, by our own hands, by our own ingenuity, creativity, and engineering, as citizen scientists the globe over, we are not dependent on whether NASA or ESA or the Russians or anybody else, the Chinese, ever deign to tell us the truth about any of this stuff until the cows come home. Why? Because we have the ability as individual amateur astronomers to verify everything I've said for the past two nights by ourselves from the earth. And we don't need private spacecraft missions. All we need is a right sized telescope, appropriate electronic camera, and a total solar eclipse. And thereby hangs an incredible tale of liberation, how we can take back control ourselves and simply blow the doors off of the cover-up, which has been in operation for not just the last 50 years, but for thousands of years before. Somebody, I believe, out there has not wanted us to know our real condition, our real heritage, and our real potential. So let's start with item number 36. This is a photo I used last weekend. It's the first seven telescope, multiple glass plate image taken by the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, an astronomer named Thomas Smiley on May 28th of 1900, of a total solar eclipse. And he used seven telescopes with seven different cameras. He took seven different pictures. And then in the dark room, he smushed them layered them all together to create this first glass plate real photograph of a total solar eclipse and on it you can see the beginnings of the hint of structure that you see in the solar corona which is neatly and coincidentally blocked by the moon during a total eclipse unlike any other planet or satellite combination Anywhere else in the solar system, nowhere else but on Earth can you see a moon of a planet neatly just cover the sun from that distance, only on Earth. And everybody for decades and decades and decades, hundreds of years, has been marveling at this extraordinary, incredible coincidence. Okay, guys, I got news. It ain't a coincidence. It's part of the Krell re assemblage and creation of the solar system in which we lived. We have total solar eclipses because someone a long time ago wanted us to have total solar eclipses because of what they can teach us about who we really are. Item number 37. Technology in the last many hundreds of years has developed to where You can now see something during a total solar eclipse that I guess I was one of the only people that kind of wondered about when I was working for CBS News many decades ago. Because what you can do um, is you with an instant, instant with a digital, essentially it's instant, um, incredibly broad um, range camera, you can take a simultaneous picture, not only of the stunning Details, the feathery streamers and and helmet prominences and all the other details of the lower and mid range corona, what the human eye sees and can never be photographed with film because film has to be exposed for a period of time during which the atmosphere blurs the detail. That's what causes stars to twinkle and heat waves to shimmer over a hard parking lot, etc., etc. A digital camera, high-end digital camera, even a smartphone camera in your phone, if you put it next to the right telescope so it magnifies the image, can take a picture simultaneously of the corona and what has never been seen up until this era by most people, which is the earth-lit, night-side, near-side hemisphere of the moon, Illuminated during a total solar eclipse by sunlight bouncing back from Earth to the surface of the Moon and illuminating it, uh, full Earth light on the Moon is about 80 times brighter than full Moonlight on the Earth, and it would easily allow you to walk around uh, in the dark on the Moon when it's night, uh, if you have the right insulated spacesuit, and see perfectly well. In fact, the astronauts in orbit reported seeing all kinds of interesting features uh on the on the part of the moon the night side uh of the of the portion where the crescent lit portion was was not illuminated by sunlight and they reported all kinds of interesting anomalies weird lights little weird blinking uh things appearing down below and out toward the horizon all of which obviously were changing sparkles in the dome reflecting Earth light that they had no idea was even there, but they reported accurately seeing these reflections, specular glass reflections off the dome, fragments hanging above the surface, reflecting the 80 times brighter than moonlight, Earth light. So that brings us to item number 38. When I was uh, at CBS and I had a whole network at my disposal, um, in 1970, or a few months before, I realized that a total solar eclipse was going to go from Mexico all the way up the East coast of North America of the United States and off into the Atlantic ocean off Halifax, Nova Scotia. The eclipse, by the way, that caused uh, uh, Carly Simon to write that very, very, very famous song, um, which I will not play or, or try to hum, but you can go and find it. It's that's the reason that total eclipse in 1970 was the reason she wrote that song clandestinely to Warren Beatty because they were going out at the time. And anyway, it's, uh, some of her emotions are expressed in that song, basically built around the 1970 total solar eclipse. So I said to Cronkite and other folks at CBS, I said, what if we borrowed an airplane from the Air Force, took it up to about 40,000 feet, put a telescope inside it and a high-end television camera? At the business end of the telescope and we broadcast for the first time a live color network view of a total solar eclipse from 40,000 feet in real time live and they looked at me I mean they knew me even then and they said you are crazy so I went to the head of the CBS labs in Stanford and we got together and he did the numbers and he went back to the management and the people, you know, Wassler, executive producer of CBS special events, and he said, you know, Hogan's actually got a pretty good idea here. So we wound up doing the first live televised uh, color coverage of a, of a total eclipse of the sun by anybody ever in the modern history of Earth, and we did it not just from the ground. We did it from 40,000 feet over Savannah, Georgia, in a borrowed KC-135. And you can see number 39, that's my credits at the end of the uh, uh, special, which actually I should have actually had a link because you can see the whole show on uh, on YouTube, and I forgot to include the link. So we'll do that uh, when we prepare it for the archive. I see now that we're at the bottom of the hour. So we're going to take a short break. You're on the other side of midnight. I'm about to get into the good stuff, which is how, because of the unique geometry of total solar eclipses, ordinary people, are there any such? Ordinary people will be able to verify in the upcoming total solar eclipse sweeping across the United States in 2024, if NASA and everybody else comps out, individual citizens of these United States will be able to verify the presence, ancient structures on the moon. And I'm about to tell you how. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this now Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. It is the witching hour. It is midnight here in New Mexico. And there's a gorgeous moon out there, which someday we're going to all realize what an incredible opportunity having such a moon. Having such a moon designed specifically for us to answer the long lingering questions of Isaac Asimov from decades ago. Remember Isaac said at one point, he says, well, if the earth didn't have a moon, we'd have to invent it. It's so damn useful. And he was thinking of stepping stones and colonies and future expeditions into the solar system. And of course, Artemis is being billed again and again by everybody from Bill Nelson on down as merely a stepping stone to the first human expeditions to Mars. And it's like nobody, and I don't really know whether they knew, know, or not. At what level do the in-crowd in NASA know what's waiting? And the extraordinary, revolutionary, staggering leap forward in consciousness and technology and the ability to take care of human beings, verifying the structures on the moon is going to catapult the entire human race into, in one fell swoop or are there folks that know and they don't want the rest of us to know because they want us to remain as I have said now as the data is accumulating they want us to remain in prison and our job is to break out of prison so tonight I'm beginning the organization of a jailbreak I'm going to show you in the rest of the show we got about an hour how you Mr. Average American, Mr. and Mrs. American, or your teenage son or daughter, or people in Hong Kong or Puerto Rico, or you, Ukraine or you know, Russia or anywhere on Earth, England, how you, because of the technology, in the summer of 2024, if you come here to the United States and park yourself in an appropriate location, checking weather, you can single-handedly totally verify the reality of this incredible ancient structure completely surrounding the moon and the physics are so clear and so obvious and so simple once you understand what you are seeing so let's get on with it okay so we're going to go back to the imagery number 40. So I took this harebrained idea to the upper levels of CBS, and after initially saying no, why is it that upper levels of management always say no? Why is their default position, oh no, it's too expensive or it's too far out or you're too kind of, I mean I was considered far out even back then, and boy if they could hear me now. Anyway, so I proposed to the director of the St- CBS Stanford Lab, who was one of their own and trusted and. You know, he had this multiple levels of Ph.D. and he ran their whole lab and he just come up with this incredible electronic news gathering technology, what's called ENG for live television by remote, as opposed to shooting film and getting it on a plane and rushing it back to a lab, developing the film and then trying to get it on the uh, evening news at uh, seven o'clock at night. You know, they did all this news that coverage back then, half an hour of Walter Cronkite every evening with film. So Bill, I forget his last name, is William, oh, Dr. William. It'll come to me. Anyway, he was pioneering a whole new way of news gathering. He was their resident genius. And if he said, hey, Hoagland's got an interesting idea here, then suddenly management said, oh, yeah, Hoagland has a good idea. I mean, that's what they paid me for. But, of course, you know, profit is not, not without honor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we started planning for this mission to borrow a KC-135, which is a big four-engine Air Force jet, the Air Force equivalent of the good old 707, which this one had huge quartz plate windows along one side because it was used to track and photograph missiles uh, with the Air Force, ballistic missiles, Polaris submarines launching missiles, Polaris uh, you know rockets out of the Atlantic Ocean just off uh, Cape Canaveral, all that. Anyway, we were my plan was we borrow one of those. We set up a horizontal telescope with a tilted mirror. The tilted mirror will be on a gyroscope so it can be aimed at the total eclipse regardless of the aircraft motion, turbulence, uh, pitch, roll, yaw, that kind of thing. Airplanes are not the most stable optical platforms to do astronomy from, certainly back then. And as kind of icing on the cake, I said to Bill, who then said to management, what if we – have a special filter made in a laboratory, contracted, cost us, uh, I don't know, I think 50 50 grand. And it's a radial gradient filter, meaning it's silvered in a vacuum so that the density of the filter, as you go from the hypothetical limb of the sun and moon, out away from the sun in all directions, uh, several radii, The gradient of the aluminum on the glass mirrors exactly the inverse of the curve of the changing brightness of the corona when you go from the limb of the moon-sun combination out several radii away from the moon. And the idea was, because cameras had very limited range back then, both film cameras and television cameras, is that we would even out the incredible disparity between the corona just above the moon's surface during an eclipse and several moon radii away, it falls by a factor of like a million, a million to one. So what I proposed is that we create an inverse optical filter to put into the optical chain of the telescope and TV camera, and we basically even out this gradient so we photograph the Corona showing all those whispered streams that you can see in stunning detail in image number 37 that we do it in analog for uh, a a version of this, as opposed to digitally in the camera now. And then further I said, and I've always wanted to see this. I said, what I want to do is I want to cut a hole in the glass filter. And they said, what? I said, yeah, I want to cut a hole so that the camera can see the unfiltered reflected earth light shining on the moon, lighting up the moon's night side in that geometry, 80 times brighter than full moonlight on earth. And a guy named Dick, oh, uh, not Underwood, Dick Dunn. He was the electronics genius in the electronics shop at CBS. And he calculated that with the best state-of-the-art low light level color television camera he could get if we put a hole in the filter we could just barely see the reflected sunlight from the earth off the night side of the moon which is that dark circle during a total eclipse that no one ever sees in other words the moon doesn't go away the features are there like a full moon except they're too dim to normally be seen And I was proposing that for the first time in history, we create an optical system to record this on television. Remember Gene, decades later, if it's real, it'll be where? On television. And we broadcast it to the entire CBS network audience all over the world. And that's what you see in image number 40. This is a frame showing the corona around the moon the hole cut into the filter that's the moon part in the center off to one side and the banded lines are the thing we didn't count on they are electronic interference from of all things the damn radar the air force radar operating in the uh uh, kc-135 that we had never imagined that would interfere with our electronics And so if we'd had more time to prepare, we only had a few months, because they dithered and dithered and dithered. And then I got my friend Charlie Wyckoff. Remember my optical genius at EG&G, who developed this super, super film that the astronauts wound up secretly taking to the moon? Well, Charlie Wyckoff helped design the entire optical system, and even he didn't catch the idea. He's the guy, by the way, that um, had photographed the AEC nuclear tests or the Atomic Energy Commission. So most of those incredible videos that you see online now of nuclear blasts blowing up all over the South Pacific, those were engineered by Charlie Wyckoff. So I assembled, you know, the creme de la creme de la creme, and we were defeated by something we hadn't thought about, you always are, which is radar interference. But even so, I've done a little playing now digitally with the moon in the center of the cut out, which is the dark circle. And in fact, you can see in very low resolution, the earth illuminated nighttime features on the moon. What I hadn't counted on is that bright ring around the right side of the image. That turns out to be, and God knows I wish I'd been smarter earlier then than I was then, and then I think now, that turns out to be the evened out gradient of the portion of the lunar dome backlit by the sun during this total solar eclipse at certain times in the eclipse captured on our state-of-the-art high sensitivity color television camera the most sensitive camera that dick dunn could find anywhere on earth and now if you look at 41 It's trivial. You point and shoot with an electronic smartphone camera, and bingo, there is the earthlit portion of the uh, night side of the moon, which I've companioned with a normal daytime photograph of the full moon. And you can look carefully at the details one to the other, and then you'll notice something very, very strange. The features do not match. Some of them do but some of them don't. And I've spent like a year or two figuring out why, if you photograph the earth lit nighttime hemisphere of the moon during a total solar eclipse are some portions of the surface weirdly obscured by some kind of haze. And then it hit me. It's all because of the optical geometry and the backlighting at the very narrow angle Of the Earth in the sky and the return reflection of light coming directly back to the eye of the witnesses of a total solar eclipse in the hundred mile or less diameter tiny spot on the Earth's surface where you can see during an eclipse actual totality. So it's again all about the geometry. Okay number 42 If you look in detail at this comparison, below is a normal visible light image of the full moon. Above is one of the uh, 2008 uh, uh, digital images taken by a team, I think, in Czechoslovakia of the same uh, eclipse that I showed a moment ago. And you can see that that bright dark area at about the 11 o'clock position in this orientation of the moon is supposed to be Mari Crisium. look in the same position on the uh, digital image of the Earth lit moon and the back corona behind it, above, it's, it's missing. Why is it missing? Because of the dome, the tight beam geometry of backscatter, which again is telling us about the optical properties and the size of the surviving glass particles They create an almost laser-like narrow beam backscatter to where during an eclipse of the sun, if you've got the right telescopic equipment and the right digital camera, and you're in the right position in totality, you will see without the need of UV filters or the elaborate expense that the CIA Project Corona went to, you can see surviving fragments of the glass obscuring detail on the surface with ordinary commercial astronomical equipment and thousands of witnesses to the 2017 eclipse, which crossed the entire United States. And that was the last expedition to the top of the Sandia mountain that Robin and I were able to enjoy while she was here. That eclipse has online, if you just look, Thousands of people publishing thousands of stunning images of the lunar dome by ordinary equipment in their backyards, in star parties, at observatories. And there's literally tens of thousands of records of the dome around the moon photographed by very competent Americans, amateur astronomers from west coast to east coast, from sea to shining sea during that two 2017 eclipse. So what's going to happen in 2024? Well, things get very interesting because look at an enhanced version of item number 42, uh, the top of 42, in 43. Look what happens when you enhance, meaning you increase the brightness, and you saturate, meaning you just turn up the color. Look at that stunning red, incredibly geometric complex layering above the surface of the moon with the Earth-lit moon in bluish tones beneath it and the brilliant geometric streamers of the corona 93 million miles away. Above and in between is this extraordinary, absolutely parallel double-layered representation of the dome above the moon in all its geometric surviving layers, and there are a lot of them, with with vertical detail. Those are the supports, and they were seen at a unique geometry during the eclipse of the sun seen in 2008. And anybody will be able to do Exactly what you're seeing here during the eclipse of 2024, because it turns out, and I'll explain what I mean in detail in a minute, uh, but it turns out that the geometry, the optical geometry that allowed these Czechoslovakian uh, astronomers to photograph this stunning backlit portion of the lunar dome uniquely in 2008 Those optical conditions, that optical geometry, will repeat precisely for the eclipse going from Mexico to the east coast of the United States in the summer of 2024, which means thousands, tens of thousands of Americans, if they know what to look for and they get the right equipment, they can produce 10,000 versions of this stunningly backlit illumination of the surviving ancient Krell-like lunar dome. And at that point, nobody anywhere on Earth, governments, deep state, the CIA, the, you know, Putin, whatever, will be able to gainsay what they are reporting. And the reality of the real, incredibly engineered ancient solar system in which we live will dawn, which takes us to item number 45. Now, this is an actual scale version of the total solar eclipse geometry that obtains at all times. The Sun and the Earth and the Moon and the Earth are all not at the same distance from each other every day of the week. The Earth's orbit is not a circle. We're slightly closer to the Sun by about a million miles in January than we are in July or June, and the Moon's orbit is not a circle. It varies quite radically, and it's also tilted to the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. So if you can see annotated in number 45, the result is what you see in item number 46. The the Sun diameter during the year optically changes in the sky. The Moon diameter, depending upon the month, also changes in the sky because of the changing distance of Earth to Moon, and the sun changes optical diameter because of the change in distance of Earth to sun. You put all those variables together, you wind up with a very interesting, unique circumstance once about every eight years, which is surrounding the brilliant white, yellow photosphere of the sun, the optical surface, there's a upper layer of the atmosphere about 10,000 miles thick above the solar surface called the chromosphere, which, because it shines in, in um, uh, resonance illumination, emitted light of the reddish light of hydrogen, among other optical spectral lines, it looks to the eye at the telescope during eclipses as bright red. You can see the effect as the moon's distance changes from the Earth, and the Earth's distance from the sun also changes, and those cycles all intermix, there will be times when, just like moving a lens back and forth in front of your eye to get something in focus, the lens, the ring of dome around the moon, acting like a lens refracts the sunlight from the sun, 93 million miles beyond, and depending upon where Those variables all hit during an eclipse, the distance of the earth from the sun, the distance of the moon from the earth. You will get a timing where the chromosphere is almost totally above the lunar horizon and other times when it is neatly below the lunar horizon during an eclipse by a finite measured amount. And if all the conditions are just right, what winds up happening is what you see in item number 49, which is, of course, um, the the lens-like effect of the lunar dome acting like an annular lens, a giant ring of refractive glass refracting an image of the chromosphere just that outer 10,000-mile-thick layer, brilliant red glowing hydrogen. Today seems to be hydrogen's day to take the center stage. That glowing chromospheric layer is neatly geometrically refracted once every eight years, given the eclipses that occur in that period, and they're like a couple of solar eclipses per year normally. You get two opportunities, and the one in the summer of 2024, with the right telescope, the right camera, the right timing, the right preparation, the right homework, the right expertise. Thousands of people will be able to photograph in stunning digital color detail the projection of the chromosphere refracted through the lens-like lens like atmosphere above the moon that really isn't an atmosphere at all. It's layers and layers of ancient shattered glass, and they will be able to photograph them with digital technology anywhere in the total eclipse path from Mexico to Nova Scotia in 2024. And if you do it right, this is a photograph taken back in 2001 by a NASA expert named Fred Espenik at Goddard, Goddard Space Light Center. Fred, until he died, was probably NASA's primary authority on eclipses. This is a photograph he took with much more primitive digital technology. You know, 2001, 2024, Moore's Law. We're getting better at doing everything the longer we do it. Anyway, look at the stunning color of that total solar eclipse. This is a digital image. You can see the corona in the incredible detail that... Digital photography now makes possible because it electronically evens out the million to one light changes between the limb of the moon and farther away from the moon, several radii away from the center of the optical combination of the moon and sun. And then you see this extraordinary, bizarre, red glow, annulus glow, covering like a third of the visible surface of the moon, which is aimed toward Earth, which is supposed to be illuminated by the Earth, right? And Earth is blue. So the blue light from the reflected Earth is primarily in the blue region of the spectrum. That's why in image number 49, you can see the image is basically blue and the scattering is blue because that's the predominant color of the light coming off the Earth from the sun. So why is the light on the hidden night side portion of the moon read in the 2001 eclipse by Astenek and his digital camera. The reason is that because the distance between the earth and sun and the moon and earth is constantly changing, during the geometry of that eclipse, the ring-like lens of the ancient lunar dome around the moon was just right to catch and refract and scatter the chromospheric light through the layers, through the horizontal layers of the surviving dome to where the scattering of chromospheric red hydrogen light extends about a third of the way around the dark portion of the moon as seen from the sun, overwhelming the bluish reflected sunlight and showing us the scattering of sunlight in the dome ducted across thousands of horizontal miles. I mean, this is, there's no way around any of this optically. There are all different ways that the presence of the dome on the moon, this incredibly ancient super civilization Krell-like architecture, which has survived millions of untold years to be available for our average person confirmation the ultimate democratization of our growing up in an artificially et rearranged ancient solar system haven't you ever wondered why we're the only solar system that looks like ours in all of the other planets that nasa has now found over the last you know couple of decades we're unique we're the only one that looks like this astronomers are howling because of course We're not supposed to be unique. We're supposed to be average. And what does that say about the origin, not only of the solar system, but the origin of humankind at the hands of these, these incredibly ancient godlike super beings? Well, I see that we're kind of at the bottom of the hour. So I'm going to save my summations and we're gonna actually open the lines and take some questions. If you wanna call us, I'll give out the numbers on the other side you are on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland and what I have just laid out in the last uh, two and a half hours is the ultimate reason for Artemis returning to the moon we shall return momentarily and welcome back everyone. Last half hour to go on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. At the beginning, and I firmly believe this, in 2022, in the next month, or month and a week, or month and two weeks, or by the end of the year, sometime after December 17th, maybe by Christmas, the human race will know with absolute certainty, A, that it's not alone, that it's never been alone, that it's had extraordinary progenitors and extraordinary history who've left the most extraordinary monument that one can imagine in the entire solar system. An entire satellite, bound in glass, wrapped like a Christmas present, waiting For humanity to reconnect with its ancient origins, which included an entirely inhabited solar system, including its own moon. So, if you want to join the conversation, we've got about a half an hour. Uh, I'm sure you have questions. I have questions, and I've been at this for a very long time. I know how to get some of the answers. We're gonna kind of brainstorm uh, and maybe get some additional answers together. Tomorrow night, uh, members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging team will be joining me for another three hours. We're gonna lay out additional evidence that they have individually been pursuing. But tonight, we can kind of do an open line, open hailing frequencies. So the number is 917-889-8802. And even if you're a member of the enterprise team and you want to jump the gun and kind of, you know, join the conversation tonight and you've got something to point out or something that wasn't clear, or you want me to go back and maybe recapitulate something that went by a little too fast, by all means, feel free. 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. And while we're getting our ducks in a row, or our smartphones uh, off the charger. I want to reiterate a couple of things. Let me let me go back to uh, um, one of the last items. Let me get back to the page. If you look at fifty-one, that's the geometry uh, of the eclipse track of twenty twenty-four across the United States uh, compared to twenty seventeen. And if you're in, I think it's Tennessee, or maybe it's Missouri, where the two Eclipse paths cross, if you're lucky enough to be there, and you look up, you would have seen the 2017 eclipse, and then just a few years later, in 2024, without leaving your porch or your parking lot, you can look up and you can see a second one, you know, just a few years later. Now, the average time between eclipses on the Earth, in terms of any one location, Between seeing an eclipse and then seeing it again, uh, we are told is about 350 years. So for folks that are living in that little rectangle, they're in the center of the heartland of America. You guys are the most fortunate of all because without even leaving home, you had the opportunity, and you will have in 2024, to have seen, within a few short years, two eclipses. And if you weren't ready for the one in 2017, if you didn't even have an inkling that maybe you could take a picture or take some photographs or whatever, you've got plenty of warning now. You've got 2022, half of it. You've got all of 2023 and half of 2024. So you've got about two years to get ready for the opportunity of a lifetime. Will you be the person? who assembles the right telescope and digital camera combination that takes the photographs or the video or the time-lapse that in fact demonstrates unequivocally to the entire world that the moon is surrounded by an ancient, glittering, crystalline glass dome. Still dense enough, still thick enough, in the horizontal of passage light through it, so that you can record it during an eclipse. You can actually photograph it, if you do it correctly, during lunar eclipses when the sun is in the reverse geometry and you're looking at back-scattered sunlight. Because remember, we know from total solar eclipses and the obvious illumination during those earlier uh, Earth-light experiments to photograph the Earth-lit moon simultaneous with the corona during totality, that that geometry, that narrow-beam retro-reflection geometry, allows the dome to really stand out even on the near side where the density is lowest. Why? Because that was the side of the moon facing front when the planet 66 million years ago that used to orbit where Mars now orbits, so-called Planet 5, was blown to kingdom come my uh, uh, van flandern exploded planet hypothesis model which of course is real the solar system after it was rearranged and carefully put together for god knows what ultimate hyperdimensional reasons there was a war there was an incredible interplanetary war and a planet was blown up and the shrapnel the trillions and trillions of particles of shrapnel spread out across the solar system, smashing into everything, and really shattered and eroded and abraded almost into non-existence the portion of the lunar dome that was facing orbital front as the Moon orbited the Earth. And then, because one of those fragments from this exploded planet was obviously deliberately directed to impact the Moon at 19.5 south, forming this huge basin called Mare Oriental. The entire Moon slowly rotated around to where the front of the Moon, in the pre-impact era, was now facing the Earth itself, becoming forevermore In this tidal lock, the earth side, the near side of the moon, the side with all the dark Maria, which are nothing more or less than geometric foundations of the ancient cities on the moon, which in this absolutely incomprehensible planet engulfing cataclysm, this interplanetary war where whole bodies, planetary bodies were destroyed. What's left is the surviving fragments of this ancient, super solar system-wide civilization that reshaped this solar system way back then, leading ultimately to the emergence of us. And how many on Earth tonight know even a glimmer of this extraordinary, shattering prehistory of our last 6,000 years. So when I hear people kind of wondering, were there ever any high-tech civilizations on Earth before? There's an actual mainstream astronomical hypothesis called the Silurian hypothesis, where mainstream astronomers and archeologists and geologists have kind of gotten together, and I may actually find the paper and I'll put it up for tomorrow night, where they're looking seriously for those signatures in the geologic record that would indicate the past presence on Earth of some incredible pre-current technological civilization. And yet they're kind of looking in the most bizarre way because they're imagining that this civilization would be burning oil and coal and leaving Carbon dioxide, excess signatures, and the planet would have undergone earlier epochs of global warming. Talk about a failure of imagination because they're projecting our incredibly primitive surviving down through the millennia and millions of years post-post-real civilization epoch for what we can project looking back at the dim prehistory of humankind on planet Earth a long, long time ago. There is a deficit of imagination among many mainstream scientists, astronomers, and geophysicists, because the place that they can look for the epic of a previous incredible epic, a wonder of the solar system unrivaled anywhere nearby, with one exception, and I'll talk about that in a minute, in fact, tomorrow night, maybe Ron, if you're listening, you might want to bring that into the conversation because the only other satellite where Ron and I independently have discovered another moon-girdling ancient shattered dome is literally engulfing the Jovian planet of Ganymede and all those bizarre puzzles which had made no sense for decades since the Voyager missions photographed close-up the wonders of the Ganymedian system orbiting Jupiter, a moon that is literally larger than the planet Mercury orbiting the gas giant of the sun, Jupiter. No one has figured out that the reason that those images are so weird is because we're looking at a much less fractured dome compared to the one arching over luna and i see we have a caller and it's my good friend robert morningstar so let me do the following let me kick this switch into gear and do that and robert you should be on the air sir, how you doing there you are hey well what do you say? i'm
4: looking forward to tomorrow night's show and uh your show tonight was really 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 good I really like the last thought you were expressing which is that the moon is a gift to humanity oh my
0: god yes
4: and I, and I couldn't agree more and
0: there will be libraries and yeah. see what's so interesting and I know you and I have differences of opinion about the Chinese but the Chinese right. ever since they went to the moon with Chang 1 have been publishing yeah. the data of what the moon is really made of what's really there what's really waiting, and I think that they overstepped their boundary, and as I've said countless times, COVID appeared in Wuhan because somebody who does not like us to be liberated from our prison slapped down the Chinese and slapped down the Chinese hard for leaving the reservation. And because Chinese culture is the way it is, they of course can't admit any of this, and so they have dissembled and prevaricated and you know lied and all that but that's secondary to what they tried to do in the beginning which was to tell the truth but in an emily dickinson fashion to continue telling it slant
4: yeah well here's one interesting synchronicity that has become evident to uh, me and andrew and uh, our Monday night crew, we have two programs, The Right Stuff and the Flash Gordon Radio Club. And we open up with Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, usually the theme, and the opening lines. And it was so prophetic because it deals with the purple death from outer space. And Dr. Gordon, Flash Gordon's father, describes the malady as electrified dust being sprinkled on the population. And I thought about chemtrails and how prescient and how for Foreseeing that whole thing was the flash Gordon serial in 1939. It's come true, and it is uh, it is genocidal, and it's it's against mammals. I see it's more than just against humanity. This thing I see crawling across the earth this anti-humanity. That's spreading. Um, for example, mass uh, mass culling of, of uh, herds of cattle in India. I've just gotten a film of of that they vaccinated all these cows and they're all dropping dead so it seems to me that there is an alien force out to get mankind and is using every well but but, but
0: but wait wait is it alien or is it the breakaways remember the breakaways well i who are believe or the nazis, breakaways nazis through are and through aliens
4: well they're no human. they're no. humans who have made a deal with with an alien
0: that's more bacteria. yeah that, that 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 is my model there's a an unholy alliance As there was an unholy alliance between these ETs, these aliens, who I think are family, I don't think they're aliens, I think they're human beings, related, distant, whatever, and they're as as Nazi as you can imagine, and they simply want to get rid of most of humankind, and the rest will become slaves in their long-range plan, which they've been, you know, projecting for the last, uh, you know, 60, 70, no, 75 years since the end of World no, War but II. There are,
4: several races. there are several races of extraterrestrial and alien life, and some are definitely inimicable to humanity. Yeah, but do we
0: really know uh, that? How do yes, we say, how, how No, 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 wait, 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 wait.
4: There is so much... I know, it, I know from reading from reading NSA memos uh, from 1968. Yeah, but how do you know they were
0: telling the truth? See, to well, me, this is a hall of mirrors. That. I used to. I believe we can't believe almost anything. It's that poster, you know, on on, on Mulder's wall. The truth is out there. But hell, finding it is really the hardest part Mm -hmm. because there's so many stories. There's so many lies, so many overlapping tales, so many contradictory things. I don't think we know almost anything about what's really out there except somebody wants us in that great line from Independence Day. They want us Mm -hmm. to die. True.
4: But it's also personal experience, and I'm speaking also from personal experience that there are a great variety of different ET alien races intruding and operating within our uh, within our peripheral vision. They they have. Uh, well, see then, them-
0: and what we're going to get into this in detail tomorrow night. My question would be, well, if they really are our friends and on our side, what the hell are they waiting for?
4: That's true. That's well. Why, isn't that a uh, big Dr. question? Dr. 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 Carla Turner wrote a, a book called The Masquerade of Angels, and she protests, you know, that they, they really were, benevolent. They wouldn't be skulking around in the dark, right? exactly, into people's lives, you know. So that intrusive element is is there. But I believe that. Do you remember E. O. Wilson wrote a book called The Ants?
0: Yes, dimly, big, way big, way back big when. Big
4: deal. Nobel Prize. All kinds of stuff. Well. I believe that the uh, breakaways, as you call them, the powers that be, the new world order, adopted his vision of the perfect society. If you remember the book, he's just extolling the virtues of ant societies and how efficient they are and how insectoid behavior um, gets things done, you know, in, in their, their ability to build mounds and nests. And, and I felt in the aftermath of that book the corporate mentality took took a turn in the direction of inculcating insect like behavior in, um, in, in industry, like just uh, like army ants, you know, they have majors and they have drones and they have the queen. And so I've seen that. That's my feeling about.
0: Do you remember a? Do you remember I a? I you. Do you remember a British film? It's one of my mm-hmm. favorite films, and I wish I could I could remember. It was part of what was supposed to be a, a series called Quartermass and the Pit.
4: Oh yeah, Quartermass and the Pit. Yes, yeah, sure.
0: And there was That's there was one episode. It was in color in the 50s, color movie. I recommend it mm-hmm. to everybody. It basically yeah. is about a scientist working with the British military, finding in a, a a an underground station what they thought was an unexploded bomb from World War II. And it turns out to be an ancient spacecraft coming from Mars. And the beings on board were part of an ancient hive society on the planet Mars. And they control people with their minds. And they awaken. And, you know, the whole end of the film is how they, you know, the good guys get rid of the, the bad, you know, invading insect-like yeah, program. it's been Martin. there. They've
4: been there 30 million years. Yes. That was the other part. Yes. Everybody was thinking of and these things are coming from the ancient past. So, yes, it's called quartermasts and the Pit. And the pit is where they find this object. The underground the
0: of, the, of, the, of the of the London subway, yeah.
4: Yeah, it's really... really oh, it's fine.
0: brilliant, brilliant. And go Frank find
4: Donlevy, it. A, an American actor. Yep. He did, he did well in England there. Hey,
0: we've got um, another call, and I'd like to bring them okay. on. You, 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 you uh, stay stay where, and I'll show you are, and i you. I don't s-
4: want to go to the top s- of the moon.
0: Stay where you are, stay okay. where you are, okay? Don't go away. All right, let me bring on area 727. You're on the air.
4: Yeah, I was wondering with these hydrogen leaks, is it possible that hydrogen in, would naturally leak more than other gases because it's just one little proton and one little electron, and it literally could creep. Oh, you're absolutely better. right.
0: The engineering, Crash Erica told me the nightmares of obtaining with 1960s technology Hydrogen will leak through anything, which means you almost have to have optical surface seals, otherwise it will find a way to get out. And so the fact that they made this look routine during the shuttle years, and they're having a bit of a problem now, you know, adapting to to engineering refinements and inevitable changes, it's all part of the logical design sequence What's not logical is that you have someone manually with a computer open a damn valve and blow the gaskets out. That's not normal. No. That tells me sabotage. And that opens the question, is it sabotage for bad reasons or because it's all about the timing and Artemis has to be there when Capstone is orbiting as well?
4: That's very interesting. So, what do you think I, of the rest I, of our data? I, I think it's very fascinating. It's getting more and more, more and more beautiful to just listen to your presentations and see see what we're learning. And I just, I'm just so happy about all this. And I do think we're getting really close to this. We're, we're, there's no way we're going to be able to hide it much longer. No way. Well, when you there's say no, we,
0: no we're not the ones hiding it. They are. And as I said, in 2024, we have a stunning citizen science opportunity. Robert, you're going to have to get your telescope ready and your cameras because average people, there are no such things, but ordinary mainstream people can blow the doors off this with just a little bit of foreknowledge and how to do it. That eclipse is an opportunity of a lifetime.
4: Well, the last eclipse was an opportunity of a lifetime for me in New York, and I went out. I took film, I took uh, uh, still shots, and the most remarkable thing was that when the eclipse was happening, the camera caught something that the human eye couldn't. No, wait.
0: See. You were not in the path of totality. You were north. Not totality,
4: but yeah. We got see, about you've got to
0: be in north. totality. If you're if you're in a partial yeah, eclipse,
4: but in, despite it, I was able to capture on video the shadow.
0: Oh, yeah. the shadow band. These have been the a shadow mystery. The, the shadow bands are the refraction by the lens of the dome around the moon. And I put up a video last week, and I'll put it up for tomorrow night again. Some enterprising amateur astronomer took digital video of the shadow bands, and we're typically told they only last a few seconds just before or mm-hmm. after totality. This guy got seven minutes of shadow bands, meaning... That all that time as the moon is encroaching with the glass lens of the dome over the sliver of the sun, the atmosphere of the earth is is working on scintillating that refracted image from the dome in the path of totality. I see it
4: with my own eyes. I actually – the optimum for seeing that is actually an annular eclipse. That's what I got to see in 2004. And when that happened – all of the glass and the mountains of the the, the northern highlands mm-hmm. appeared in silhouette, and the, everything everything in my area. I was in Saratoga, New York. I rented a plane up to fly up there to be in the totality. And uh, when it happened, several things happened. Clouds appeared in the sky that were invisible before the eclipse. They had rainbows around the edges everything began to cast a hundred shadows or more rippling as the Sun passed behind the moon or the moon passed in front of the Sun but in an annular eclipse the the light wrapped itself around the moon so that we could see the surface of the moon in a in a scattering of backlight that made it appear so the moon looked like it was coming out of the sky Unlike the flatness of a a a total eclipse, the blackness, you could see the front of the moon bulging toward the earth. And I risked my eyesight, Mm. you know, no man looks upon the gorgon and lives. Yeah, yeah, you you can do that. (laughs) You know, I I looked at it without my sunglasses.
0: Another great line (laughs) from Forbidden Planet, Mm. by the way.
4: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, my eyesight recovered, and it was a resplendent sight, and I could see a prism. A prism is the best description, as you have said. And I was skeptical for many years uh, about it till we discovered the. Um, in June of uh, 2020, I discovered the first real color, full color photograph of the moon, which showed in detail. That what Richard has been speaking about is right. So we'll talk about that tomorrow.
0: Oh, and, and there's some additional things because I'm going to tomorrow I'm going to go into the details of the Capstone mission and the Denuri mission and show why inevitably they if Artemis never even makes it those two missions alone can totally change everyone's perspective on the domes on the moon because they have the technology on board to again blow the doors off the cover up.
4: Yeah, I'm going to talk about Edgar Mitchell's UFO photo, and I'm also going to tell you why I don't think we should go to the south pole of the moon. And there's a crater in there where somebody's already operating, so I hope to show those photographs to
0: you. Okay, all right. Okay. And I will present counterpoints of you. Okay, guys, we got about four minutes. Uh, Caller, do you have anything more? Did we lose our caller?
4: Yeah, I think I think he thought the show ended when you said we just have about four minutes. Didn't expect him. He didn't expect you to come back to him. <laughs> anyway, should be a good show. And uh, Artemis semitized. That was stunning. You know that report about the the uh, two commands. The, the oh my God! Commands. It's
0: obvious. It's that like is it's out a... of this
4: world, Richard. And I want I want to if see how, I want, see, I want I don't to
0: see I I want to see how they explain it away when they do the briefing on Tuesday afternoon. Because we've got them dead to rights. They literally laid out all what happened, and it was a human being inputting the wrong command to open the wrong valve to destroy that hydrogen line during the pre-chill. Obvious, obvious.
4: Yeah, incredible.
0: Okay. So. uh, All right,
4: until tomorrow. Okay. Have a good night.
0: Gosh, I've got three whole minutes here sitting by myself. What are we going to do? What could I do? Um, Okay. Let me do a little philosophy. I've been at this now for, good help us, half a century. And it's been like Lucy and the football. Again and again and again, we came up to where I thought we'd have a breakthrough and something happened. But there's so much going on all around the world right now. Things that do not appear even related, which might be related in the ultimate fullness of time. And given the way events are tracking, and I'm talking political events, I'm talking the Ukraine war, I'm talking Putin's health, I'm talking what was in the boxes at Mar-a-Lago and the 43 empty file. I'm talking all of it as a backdrop to- 90 seconds. Thank you. As a backdrop to what is waiting on the moon for these three missions, Denori, which means, by the way, in South Korean, enjoy moon, and then the capstone mission. Why would you name a mission capstone? When, when I told someone the other day its name, they said, oh, my God, there's, a, there's an Egyptian. Can, you think? Great Pyramid, Washington Monument. Uh, you know, David Sarita has laid that out in stunning detail again. And it's all coming to a head, and it's all going to hit the fan in the next few weeks And months, not years, not forever, but literally right around the corner. And speaking of right around the corner, until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep looking at the moon.